remain standing for the reading of God's word. Today's passage is from the Gospel of John, chapter 1. John chapter 1, beginning in verse 14 through verse 18. I'm reading from the English Standard Version. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. You have revealed yourself to us in a few ways. You have revealed yourself to us in creation. So generally, we see your glory in the sun and the stars and the moon. You reveal yourself through your word, this holy book that we hold is your word to us. And we pray this morning that you would speak to us through your word, that your spirit would quicken our hearts to faith in what we read and what we hear. And Father, ultimately and supremely, you have revealed yourself in your son. And as we meditate on that, In the next little bit, I pray that your spirit would do what we cannot do, and that is to open the eyes of our hearts to see, to believe, to rejoice in that which we, for which we have rebelled against. So I pray that you would meet with us now in your word, that your people would be edified, that your glory would be seen and known and enjoyed, and that we would be the better for gathering together under your word as a faith family. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You can be seated. For those of you who have been at Trace Crossing before, or for those of you that have been here the last few weeks, you kind of got a heads up on this, but we typically give out a sheet of notes, okay? It's usually, it can sometimes be a little intimidating, and I was actually in a sermon one time where Landon passed out notes, and it was like there was a staple on the top, like, you know, you got, anybody remember that, that day where there was a staple on the notes, and you just had this <laughs> kind of fear of what that sermon was going to be like? I mean, it was excellent, you know, and then I can have, you know, I would have notes that there would only be notes on half the page, but still the sermon would be an hour and a half, but, you know, I've grown past that at this point. But, you know, typically we have given notes, but during this Advent season, and one of our elders even prayed that we would, we would not be distracted by what's going to happen tomorrow, you know, and, and the next day that our attention would be focused solely on Jesus. And so what we've tried to encourage this Advent season is simplicity. And so we, we haven't passed out any notes, but if you do have the booklet where you had the lyrics where there was some misspelling and sometimes there were actual lyrics that were being sung, but it's okay. We'll, we figured it out. We'll figure it out. But in this, in this booklet, um, there are actually two pages where they're blank pages for sermon notes. If, you, if you're a sermon note taker, you have an opportunity to do that there. If you have a pen or a pencil or whatever you want to jot that down with, you can do that there. Um, this Advent season, we have been focusing on the theme of hope. And 
we've, we've started by looking at the promise of hope in the Old Testament. We went to Isaiah 59, and we see this great promise of in the depths of our darkness, in the depths of our despair, God is going to enter as a conquering and saving redeemer to rescue us from the pit of our own sin. And then we move to John chapter 1, and we've been in John chapter 1 for the last few weeks, and we began by looking at the origin of hope. And that's where we saw in John chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, we read this, and you can follow along with me. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. And so we saw that Jesus, who we're going to see later, and especially this morning, as the Word, is eternal. He doesn't have a beginning. He was actually there. He existed before the beginning, before the beginning of anything. Jesus was there. And so what we're affirming is that baby Jesus that we, that we kind of uh, almost uh, mythologized, we, we, we kind of put up as a figure similar, similar to Santa Claus in some ways where we have this holiday figure He's not just a holiday figure. No, Jesus is the eternal God and creator of the universe. And so then we move from there to look at the rest of that passage, verses 4 through 13, and we saw the light of hope. And we just confess together that the world we live in is very dark, very dark because of our sin, and because of sin in general, and because of evil. And we see darkness in us, and we see darkness around us, and we see that Jesus, even though he is the eternal God, he broke into the darkness as the light of the world to bring us into the light. And for those of us who have received him, we can not only be called children of God, but children of the light. And we are called to walk in that light. Well, now we're coming to the close of our Advent series, and I just want to marvel with you this morning. I want us to meditate, and I want us to marvel at the simple truth. And we're going to look at the, the entire passage, verses 14 through 18. But these five words, and the word became flesh. That's the arrival of hope. So this morning and, and tomorrow and the next day in your families and here we're gonna gather for a Christmas Eve service, we're gonna mark and marvel at the birth of Jesus. But we do so with Trembling, You know, we kind of take it for granted. We kind of casually talk about God coming to earth and Emmanuel, God with us. But if we stop for a second, do you recognize what we're actually saying when we say that? Because we should approach this passage especially with great trembling because it is a great, great mystery. That passage that we just read, it's one of the most mysterious passages in all of the Bible. It is the most shocking statement, especially when it was originally written and you would have had Jews and Gentiles alike who would have read this and been totally floored by this statement. New Testament scholar Grant Osborne, he once said of this passage, in my opinion, this is the single greatest sentence ever written in the history of human language. The deepest theological statement ever written the deepest theological statement ever written. For those, you know, uh, Sandy and and her daughters and some others, they helped move my books in. I I have tons of systematic theology books. And Grant Osborne, who I have a few of his books in there, he himself is saying, there is no deeper theological statement than these five words. And the word became flesh. John Calvin, he referred to this passage as the unutterable mystery. 
the unutterable mystery. It's unspeakable. It's so great. It's so mysterious. We can barely even get it out of our mouths that God took on flesh. And even Paul, you can turn there later, but in 1 Timothy chapter 3, he, he says to Timothy, great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh. Do you see it as a mystery? You see, and this is kind of where I have hesitations, honestly. One of the things that, that Luke and I talked about before, before his baptism was, uh, and, and he talked with his parents about it as well, was that he's like, I have some doubts about some things. I just love that. I love when someone is able to confess that they have some doubts about God or some doubts about the Bible or doubts about Jesus himself because that's a person who is growing. That's a person who the Spirit of God is working on. If you're dishonest with your doubt, well, I don't have any doubts, 100% certain. I have no problems whatsoever. You are not being honest with yourself because this is too mysterious. This is too great to not have any doubts whatsoever. And so the real and lasting hope that we've been talking about the last few weeks, I want you to know this. It hangs by the thread of an unutterable, unspeakable, shocking, beautiful, glorious, scandalous mystery. Do you recognize that this morning? Do you recognize maybe with Paul that you're like, hey, if this stuff about Jesus isn't true, then my life is completely wasted? If Jesus... Didn't, wasn't actually born, didn't actually die, didn't actually rise from the dead, that I have no hope at all and I'm wasting my life following him? Do you feel that this Christmas season? Do you feel that your hope, everything that you're hoping in, is actually hanging by the thread of a mystery? And it makes sense, right? It might scare us a little bit, but it makes sense that real hope would at least be mysterious, if not pure fiction. Because the cynic in me, the cynic in me says that there is no hope. Do you know why? Because the realist in me knows that I am what's wrong with the world. Everything I hope in, when that hope is not fulfilled, when it's not realized in my life, I'm part of the problem and I can't get out of my own way. I hope to be healthier. I hope to be healthier. I'm working to be healthier. But I drive past Scarlet's Donuts every single day on the way to the gym. It's right there, right? It's right there. I drive past Scarlet's every single day on the way to the gym, and Mitch and I will work out, and you know, sometimes I'll be like, hey, bro, I'll see you later, and I just let him kind of get out, and he gets on down the road, and I'm like, yeah no witnesses no witnesses and then you just kind of pull in the parking lot over there you barely even have to you know accelerate you know you just kind of roll into the parking lot and you can pull up to the window yes a dozen bear claws please I hope to be healthier I drive past Scarlet's on the way to the gym but it's not Scarlet's fault right if I pick up a dozen donuts on the way home from the gym it's my fault the problem is me and so I also hope to be a better husband I hope for that. I work for that. But sometimes my job, it keeps me from spending enough time with my wife. I want to be a better dad. But sometimes my job, ministry, it keeps me from spending enough time 
with my kids. But it's not my job's fault. It's not my job's fault if I am lazy and don't give significant time and prioritize my calendar so that I make sure that I am giving enough time and attention to my kids and to my wife. I'm part of the problem. Our culture has become a culture of victims where everyone's a victim. Everyone's a victim. Nothing is ever your fault. But when you actually break it down, most of the things, most of the hopes you have that aren't fulfilled, that aren't realized, there's one common denominator in all of them, and it's you. You're the problem. I'm the problem. All of the problems in the world and in your life are the result of either your sin, someone else's sin, or an institution's sin, for instance. We are the problem. Humans, we are the problem. We are the reason the world is the way it is. We are separated from God because of our sin. Have you ever considered this? You know, we just kind of assume that this is how the world is supposed to be, where God's up there and we're down here. Maybe, maybe you're here this morning and you've never heard that that's not how it was in the beginning. That's not how God designed the world to be and function. God did not create the world so that he would be up there and we would be down here. God created the world so that people would be with him in his presence, so that God would be here and we would be here. Unity, love, community, togetherness. That's, that's why the world was created, so that God could share his love and his glory with his creation and especially his creatures, human beings. That's how the world was originally created. The reason God's up there and we're down here is because we left. Humanity rebelled against God, sinned against God. And because of that sin, there is a deep, uncrossable chasm that exists between the divine and the human. On his side is holiness, love, light, beauty, truth, life, and glory. On our side is sin, hate, darkness, lies, death, and shame. Hope? There is no hope on this side of the chasm. There is no hope because we can't escape it. We can't escape the pit. We can't escape the darkness. We can't escape death. We don't have any hope that really counts. We don't have any hope that really lasts, that we can grasp and hold on to when the darkness closes in. But that's where the beauty of Christmas comes in. That's why we gather to worship. That's why we gather to celebrate. Because we recognize if we are to have hope, it has to come from his side. It can't come from our side. And we can't get to his side. It's uncrossable. So what's the only way? The only way is if he decides to cross the chasm himself and come to us. That's the only way we could ever possibly have hope. And so, long introduction as usual, but now we're gonna enter into this passage to discuss this great hope, this arrival, this dawning of hope. Because in the history of the world, there was one singular special moment when everything on God's side of the chasm 
collided with everything on our side of the chasm. The essence of holiness and love and light and beauty and truth and life and glory, it entered and collided with all of our sinfulness, with all of our hate and our darkness and our deceit and our death. And this shameful world received the light of God when the word became flesh. So I'm dividing our passage into three parts. We're going to look at it in three ways. So if you're a note taker, here are your three headings. Here we go. So first, we will consider the glory of Christmas. The glory of Christmas. That, that is that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Second, we will consider the gift of Christmas. The gift of Christmas. And that is that sinners can see God's glory and receive God's grace. And then third, we will consider the grace of Christmas itself, that there is a way, there is a way to truly, personally, and intimately know God through Jesus alone. So first, the glory of Christmas. All right, so if you look at verse 14, we have two um, articles or two sections, two truths that we need to emphasize here. The first, we have, and the word became flesh. So the word, the second word, the second and in that passage between flesh and dwelt, it actually divides it really well. So the first side of that we have, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. So that's, that's our first point, our first truth, the glory of Christmas is that first, God became man, and second, that God came to dwell with you. So first, God became man. And so, and the word became flesh. So the word, we go back to verse one, we have the context which tells us that in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. And so now when we take that knowledge and we come down to verse 14, what do we see? And the word, well, who is the word? Well, the word was not only with God, the word was God. And so God became flesh, now, John could have said this in a number of ways, right? When he's referring to flesh, we know from context that he is not referring to flesh in the way that Paul typically refers to the word flesh. And when Paul uses the word flesh, he's typically referring to a sinful, corrupted nature. You know, our flesh, our flesh causes us to sin. That's not what he's talking about here. He's talking about meat. That God, who is spirit, took on flesh, Meat, bones. He had a heartbeat. And so this is his way, this, this graphic way of saying that the immortal took on mortality. That God became a human. But he's saying it in these stark terms. He's wanting to emphasize the distance between the two. He could have easily said, and God became human. Easily. He could have easily said, and God became man. But no, he chooses to say, and God became flesh. To emphasize the great distance that exists between God and humanity. It's flesh. This eternal God, this glorious being, he took on flesh. And so I want to talk about two things with this. First, what does this mean? Okay, what does it mean and what did it look like and what has the church always said about this? Because as I've said, this is an unutterable mystery. It is so mysterious, but what is it? And then secondly, why did he do it? So first, what? 
What is this? When we say the word became flesh, what we're emphasizing is that baby Jesus, Jesus of Nazareth, is a unique kind of person. The first kind of person like this, the only kind of person like this. Jesus is one person. Can you say one person? All right, we'll try that again. You're a little rusty. I'm sorry about that. We don't really talk much in this church. Okay, you ready? All right, so Jesus is one person. Yeah, with two natures. Yeah, so he is one person with two natures. Jesus has both a divine nature and he has a human nature. So divine nature and human nature. Jesus is truly God and truly man. So what that means is when Jesus, when the word became flesh, God did not leave his deity in the heavens to become a human, okay? He brought it with him. Jesus has never, ever stopped being God. He didn't stop being God just for a season so that he could be human for a little while. No, Jesus has always been God. And so when the word became flesh, when the son descended and took on flesh, he became a human. He became a human. I want to read a few quotes here just to help us marvel at this because these guys have said this a lot better than I could ever possibly say it. Well, first, we need to emphasize those two things. Both natures are preserved in that he's truly God and truly man, meaning that um, he didn't lose his deity, and then now when he's ascended in heaven, he didn't lose his humanity. He is eternally and forevermore the God-man, truly God and truly man, with one person with two natures. And so let's listen to a few of these, a few of these quotes. And this, this is first from J.I. Packer, and maybe you want to write these authors' names down because they have excellent works outside of this. J.I. Packer said, The Almighty appeared on earth as a helpless human baby, needing to be fed and changed. I mean, that that hits me so hard right now, just because we're feeding and changing a lot with our, our little ones. Needing to be fed and changed and taught to talk like any other child. The more you think about it, the more staggering it gets. Nothing in fiction is so fantastic as the truth of the Incarnation. Mark Jones, he said, in Christ we see eternity and temporality, eternal blessedness and temporal omnipotence and weakness, omniscience and ignorance, unchangeableness and mutability, infinity and finitude. And then John Calvin commenting on this passage, he says, On the truth that the word was made man, there are two things chiefly to be observed. The first is that two natures were so united in one person in Christ that one and the same Christ is true God and true man. The second is that the unity of person does not hinder the two natures from remaining distinct so that his divinity retains all that is peculiar to itself and his humanity holds separately whatever belongs to it. And so the emphasis there is that everything that makes God God, Jesus possesses. And everything that makes a human human, Jesus possesses. Ah, you may be thinking, well, that's problematic because I'm a sinner. And if Jesus possesses everything that a true human possesses, then that means that Jesus must have possessed sin. And yet we know from the testimony of Scripture and his life in the Gospels that Jesus never sinned. 
He never committed a sin. He was exactly like us except for our sin. Well, if he did not have sin, how can he be truly human? Because to err is human. Humans by nature sin. So if Jesus never sinned, was he ever really a human? Maybe he was just God and he just had a shell like of a body, but he wasn't really a human. And that was one heresy that the church had to fight against was that Jesus didn't actually have a soul, a human soul. He just had the shell of a body. Well, this is where it gets really interesting. Because I don't know if you know this, but humans were not created with sin in them. To be truly human is actually to be without sin. We are not fully human, okay? We are truly human, but we are not fully human because we have sin in our lives. We lost a piece of our humanity when Adam and Eve fell in the garden, when they sinned against God. And Jesus, whenever he lives his life as a perfect, sinless Savior, he's not just doing it as a substitute like, well, this is the only way for it to be. He's actually showing us what humanity was made for. And he's actually showing us what humanity will be like one day in the new heavens and the new earth, where we will live with him without any sin at all. And so John Calvin, J.I. Packer, Mark Jones, all these authors that are modern, all of their views on the person of Jesus, one person with two natures, it's, it's actually phenomenal. They all draw back to one creed in the history of the church, and that's the Chalcedonian Creed. In the year 451, the church was facing a number of different heresies about the person of Jesus. And it makes sense that there are heresies about the person of Jesus because it's so mysterious and it's so confusing. But these Christians got together in, in Chalcedon and they met and they developed this creed, this statement about who Jesus is. And I want to read it to you because this, you cannot do better than this. This is who Jesus is according to the scriptures. Let's, let's, let me read this to you. We then, following the Holy Fathers, all with one consent, teach men to confess one and the same Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, the same perfect in Godhead and also perfect in manhood, truly God and truly man, of a reasonable soul and body, co-essential with the Father according to the Godhead and co-essential with us according to the manhood, in all things like unto us without sin, begotten before all ages for the Father of the Father according to the Godhead, in these latter days for us and for our salvation, born of the Virgin Mary, the Mother of God, according to the manhood, and one and the same Christ, Son, Lord, only begotten, to be acknowledged in two natures. Now listen to these words. Inconf mm. oh, hang on, sorry. Well, there she went. We've had awesome technology today. Great. All right, well, that was half of the Chalcedonian Creed. So if you want to look up the rest of it, man, I was right in the middle of it too. But it's inseparably, inconfusedly. You have these two natures that exist in one person, and they are not at odds with one another. It is glorious who Jesus is. There is no one, no one, no one like him. But why? Why would God take on flesh? Why would God become human? Why would he become a man? And we see him do a few things in this. First, 
He identifies with us. He relates to us in a way that he could not have before. You know, you ever have the person who, um, or you've gone through a season of suffering, and it's a specific thing that happened to you, possibly a divorce, for instance. So let's say, let's say you're divorced, and you have a married couple, and they come to you, and they start trying to give you advice on what you should do. You may receive that, but, you know, what you may think is, well, yeah, that's easy for you to say because you don't know what this is like. You, you don't know what I'm going through right now. But if you're divorced and someone who has been divorced comes to you and starts talking and giving you advice, you listen, right? Because you know that they know what this is like. You know that they know what you're going through. And so when God becomes a human, he can now fully identify with us and fully relate to us. Jesus was not immune to temptation. He was not immune to suffering. So he knows. Whenever you pray to God through Jesus, you are praying to someone who experientially knows what you're going through. And so, yes, one of the reasons is that Jesus came to identify with us and to relate to us. And then secondly, he came you know, to teach us, to show us what it means to be truly human. And so in Jesus, we have an example but if he just came to identify with us and to relate to us just so we would feel better when we pray to him, or just to show us how we're supposed to live, it wouldn't be enough. It wouldn't be enough for us because this great chasm still exists. The reason that God became a human, that the word became flesh, is for reconciliation and representation. Jesus, the God-man, reconciles us to God and we said it a few weeks ago but we see it again here in his very person God and man is reconciled this one person with two natures this one who is truly God and truly man the divine and the human are reconciled in his person which foreshadows the work that he's going to do so when he dies on the cross he dies as the God man his deity didn't take a back seat he dies as the God-man on the cross to reconcile sinful humanity to a holy God. He reconciles us, but he also represents us. Do you remember Adam in the garden? When Adam was created, he was created to live with God and to love God. He was created to live in his presence and follow his commands, live under his rule, and Adam failed. He failed. He disobeyed. He sinned. And Paul tells us in Romans chapter 5 that because of his sin and in his sin, we all sin and we are all guilty of sin and we are all separated from God. We inherit a sinful nature because Adam failed to do what humanity was created to do. And when Jesus comes in our place, because he is truly human, he represents all humans in his life, in his death, and in his resurrection. So that by faith in him, when you're united to him, not only are all the benefits of his work counted to you, but in him we have a representative who shows us what it means to be truly, truly human. He did what Adam failed to do. He did as a man, as a human, what humans were created to do. And now, because of him and through him, we can do the same Thing. Now it is counted to us because we still inherit a sinful nature, but eternally we will finally, finally, and fully be doing what people were originally created to do because of this second Adam, Christ the Lord. So God became man. But the second part of the glory of Christmas is that God comes to dwell with us. So look at the second part of this verse. 
And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Dwelt among us. The, the word there that is in the Greek could literally be translated tabernacle. And John uses this word intentionally. He wants his Jewish readers especially to think back to the Old Testament. You see, in the Old Testament, God created um, the people Israel. And one of the means that they were going to have of communing with God and meeting with God was the tent of meeting and the tabernacle. And they, whenever God would lead them to a new place with a pillar of cloud or a pillar of fire, they were to take down the tabernacle, this huge tent, and move it. Because that's where God in his glorious presence would be with his people. The tabernacle was the means of God dwelling with his people. And John tells us that the word tabernacled with humanity that God became flesh to dwell with sinful humanity and this is where we see that the incarnation is the apex or the crux of human history and the Bible's story so even though the incarnation is incredibly mysterious none of the Bible makes sense without it when you actually walk through, and, and the, if you didn't know this, the Bible actually has a really clear storyline. You can trace it from beginning to end and see major plot movements throughout the Bible in its story. But the story makes no sense apart from the incarnation. So even though it's super mysterious, it actually clarifies the rest of the Bible. And one of the things that the Bible is primarily about is God's presence with his people in a specific place under his powerful rule. Some of you may already be thinking of images from the Old Testament that make sense of that, but I'll, I'll repeat that to you. The Bible story is all about God's presence with God's people in God's place under God's powerful reign and rule. So you have his presence with his people in his place under his power. Now think about the storyline of the Bible. You begin with Eden, the Garden of Eden, Genesis 1 through 3. What is Eden? Eden, in Eden, what do we see? When God created the world, before sin entered the world, you have God's presence with God's people, Adam and Eve, in God's place, Eden, under his powerful rule. Now, they rebelled against that, and what happened when they rebelled against it? What happened when sin entered the world? They are banished. They are banished from that place. And from that moment forward, God did not have to pursue them. We don't deserve the presence of God. We don't deserve it. Because of our sin. Because of our sin, the kids will tell you we can't come in. We can't come in because of our sin. But what we see as we continue reading the Bible is the grace of God in pursuing sinners. The glory of God wanting to meet and be with sinners like us. And we see it with Abraham. Abraham is called to leave his home and go to a new place where God will be with him. And he will create a people after him. And they will dwell in this specific place under God's powerful rule. And then we see Abraham and his descendants and all of that and how it works out. But then all of a sudden, all of the people of God are in slavery in Egypt. But what happens? Through Moses and all these plagues, God rescues his people from the hand of Pharaoh. For what purpose? What does he do with them? He brings them out and he gives them his presence. He makes them his people. He tells them to go to a specific place, the promised land, where they will live under the law, his powerful rule. And then here in the Gospels, what we see in Jesus is the exact same thing. In Jesus himself, 
He is the culmination of all of this. He is the fulfillment of all of these Old Testament shadows. As God, his presence is with his people in the person of Jesus. And through the work of Jesus, he is taking us to a new world, a new place where we will dwell with him forever under his powerful rule. And that's what we see the end of the Bible story is that new place. The new heavens and the new earth, the new Jerusalem. It's like a new Eden. It's a new Eden where God will be with his people forever in God's place under his powerful rule. And we see this all because God decided to take on flesh and dwell with us and live with us. And so a simple truth I want you to pull from this. God doesn't wait for you to come to him. He doesn't wait. He comes to you. He comes to you. Even more glorious than that, God wants to be with you. Is that not phenomenal? Mind-blowing that God desires to be with you? He wants you. And he knows you. That's the more amazing part. He wants to be with you, but he doesn't wait for you to come to him. He doesn't wait for you to get your life together. He doesn't wait for you to obey enough, and then you can come in. He says, no, on your own, you can't come in. The chasm is too deep. It's too far apart. It's uncrossable. And so he comes to us, and that is the glory of Christmas. But secondly, we see the gift of Christmas, and we see two gifts. We see two gifts here, and let's, let's look at the end of verse 14 and then verse 16. We're actually going to skip John the Baptist. We talked about that bro last week, so we're not going to bother with him this week. So the end of verse 14 says, And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And then verse 16, For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. So there are actually two gifts that you're going to receive this Christmas. Okay, so children, don't expect any other gifts because this is it. All right, so maybe Santa will come through or something. I don't know, but here we go. The first gift, sinners can see God's glory. So the end of verse 14, and we have seen his glory. So the, grace, the gift of Christmas is that sinners can see God's glory. God's glory in the Old Testament and throughout the whole Bible is the manifestation of two things, his greatness and his goodness. His greatness and his goodness. I want you to turn with me to Exodus 34. Exodus chapter 34. Because I bet John had Exodus 34 in his mind when he wrote this. Exodus 34, the Lord's giving Moses the Ten Commandments, these new tablets, and we have in verse 5, and following, follow along with me, the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord. A God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. 
keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. So you have the glory of the Lord in the Old Testament is seen in a few ways, where this glorious, it was, it, the, the vision would be fire and cloud leading the people whenever the Holy of Holies is placed, where the priests would go in to offer sacrifices. It would be the glory of the Lord that would meet them in that place. And if anyone other than the approved priest went in there, they would immediately die. You could not gaze on the Lord's glory and live because of your sin. There is no possible way for you to see God's glory and live. But Exodus 34 tells us that God's glory is the manifestation of both his greatness and his goodness, his holiness and his mercy, his love and his grace. And what John tells us is when he walked or saw Jesus of Nazareth walking around, when he was with him, when he ate meals with him, he was actually looking at the very glory of God. We have seen his glory in Jesus because Jesus is the manifestation of God's greatness and his goodness. He is both God and man in one person, and he brings us into the presence of the Lord through his powerful work on our behalf, which is made up of both his greatness and his goodness. Apart from his holiness, his mercy means absolutely nothing. But apart from his mercy, his holiness would drive us out and kill us. We would not be able to stand. So the gift of Christmas is that you can see God's glory and live. Well, how do we see God's glory? We see God's glory not with our own physical eyes, because that's what John, he had that gift. He could actually see Jesus. We don't see Jesus physically, but we see Jesus through the eyes of faith. We see and behold the glory of the Lord through faith. So first, sinners can see God's glory and live. But the second gift is that sinners can receive God's grace. And what a word of hope. It says that we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. So Jesus himself is full of grace and truth. And then jump down with me to verse 16. For from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. So think of it this way. Since Jesus is full of grace, full of grace, it tells us a couple things. And so, and since it's from his fullness we receive grace, it tells us at least two things. First, that Jesus himself is a never-ending supply of grace. Jesus is a never-ending supply of grace. He will never, ever, ever run out of grace and mercy. You will never get on his nerves by asking for forgiveness. You will never experience Jesus turning you away because you've just asked for forgiveness one too many times. Don't have enough left for you. No, he is a never-ending supply of grace. But it also tells us something about us. If Jesus is full of grace, then we are empty. 
If it's from his fullness that we receive grace, and the only thing that we're full of is sin. And so you will never, ever run out of need for grace. Jesus will never run out of supply of grace, and you will never run out of need. Don't think that you're going to finally come to a place where you don't need God's grace anymore. Like you finally arrived. You know, I'm finally in a routine. That's good, you know. I finally developed the habit and discipline of daily Bible reading and daily prayer. And I'm actually checking on brothers and sisters in this faith family. And I'm loving others and I'm seeing God work in my life. Don't think for one second that that means that you don't need God's grace tomorrow. You will continue to sin. Brothers and sisters, you will continue to sin. Which means you will continue to need God's grace. And the good news is he will provide it. From his fullness you receive grace. It's not just that he has a little bit of it or he has a limited supply. He has an endless supply of grace that he wants to pour out on you. He is a fountain of grace. So Christian, come daily to drink at that fountain. Daily. Come and confess your need. He already knows. And he will provide the grace that you need for today and tomorrow and 50 years from now. He is an endless supply of grace. So one, one more thing I want to emphasize this, this passage. Currently, we can see God's glory in Jesus by faith. Currently, we receive God's grace because we are in constant need of his grace because of our sin. But we were not just created to see God's glory. We were created to be God's glory. I want you to turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Second Corinthians chapter 3. There's one verse here. Because you may be thinking, I, I, don't, I don't know exactly what it means to see God's, God's glory and trusting in Jesus, but it doesn't really, I don't really feel it that way. Second Corinthians 3, verse 18. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. Okay, so here's what that means. If you are growing as a Christian and you feel like you are further along in your faith today than you were last year or the year before, you're growing and you're seeing that growth. You are growing in degrees of glory. That means that you're not just beholding the glory of the Lord more and more, but you are becoming the glory of the Lord more and more. And so I want to encourage you, not just this Christmas season, but every day of the year, your goal should be to not just see God's glory, but to reflect God's glory to the world. And we do that by growing in Christ. The more you behold his glory in his word, the more you will reflect his glory in the world. The gift of Christmas. So third, the grace of Christmas. And I want to emphasize this grace. We've mentioned it for a second that from Jesus you receive the fullness of his grace every single time. He will never run out. He is a fountain of grace that will never run dry. But third, the grace of Christmas. And we see two parts with this as well. 
first that salvation is found apart, apart from works of the law. Look, look at verse 17. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him know. So verse 17 first. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Why the contrast here at this point? You know? Why, why did John decide to do that? Well, look at the last little phrase in verse 16. It says, For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. There are a number of different ways to translate this. And what John is essentially saying, I believe, because of what the next verse says, is that a better and newer and truer kind of grace has arrived in Jesus than that was there with the law. And so I think we do the law an injustice. We tend to think of the law as just this like uh, set of rules, you know, and you have this like vengeful, just like kind of angry or just grumpy God who's like, you better follow my rules. And then if you didn't follow the rules, there were serious consequences. And then Jesus comes to save the day and the law was really bad and the grace of the gospel is really good. No, the law was not really bad. The law was given by God, and the people were empowered by God to obey the law, but they often failed to do that. The problem with the law is that it couldn't change your heart. That was the problem with the law. Okay, but the law itself was a gift of grace to the people. It showed them how they could live with God and dwell with God and have their sins atoned for, and how they were supposed to live as a community of believers with one another. The law was a way for the people to connect with God. It was a good and gracious gift, but it couldn't solve the problem of inner sin. And so the grace that comes in Jesus changes that dynamic. So whereas the law used to be a bridge that connected God's people with God, now it's a sign that points to the bridge. Jesus has become the bridge, the only bridge that connects sinful humanity with a holy God. You remember that great chasm that we talked about? Jesus is the bridge. He is the one who brings humans back to God and reconciles us. And only he can do that. So the law itself was gracious. And now it serves us as a teacher. It teaches us not just how we should live, but that we should be looking to Jesus alone for salvation. So salvation from your sin does not come through super obedience. It comes through humble faith in Jesus' obedience on your behalf. When Jesus came, he fulfilled the law. When Jesus came, he died in your place for all of the ways that you transgressed the law. And Jesus rose again in victory over sin and death so that the law then is no longer a slave master. It's a teacher and points us and shows us that grace and love and mercy is found in Jesus alone. So salvation is found apart from works of the law. And secondly, salvation is found in Jesus alone. So if, if you're here and you don't know Jesus, or maybe you're thinking Christianity is one among many religions, and they all have their ways, they all, all have their you know, teachings, and they all show us how to get to God, and you know, there are things that are true about all of them, and I'm not sure that it really matters which one you follow. I mean, as long as you're a good person, and maybe if you believe in God, it doesn't matter what kind of God you believe in, maybe in the end you're going to be okay. Christianity is a little harsher than that. Here's what we say. 
If you don't know Jesus, you can't know God. Because that's, that's what we're left with. That's what our holy book says. Look what John says in verse 18. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. Jesus and Jesus alone reveals God to us. Sure, God reveals himself in creation. Sure, God reveals himself in his word. But Jesus is the supreme revelation of God. In Jesus, we see God himself. And he is the only way that we can know God. Jesus is the only way. But more than that, Jesus is the only way for you to be with God. No one has seen God, and no one will see God and rejoice apart from the saving work of Jesus on your behalf. You can't know him, and you can't live with him. You can't be with him apart from Jesus. And that's what we celebrate at Christmas. That's what Christmas is all about. God entering our broken world. Jesus being God and man. The word becoming flesh so that we could be reconciled to God. It only happens through him. It can only happen through him. There is no other way. So I want to implore you this morning to turn from your sin and trust in Jesus alone. Not just because he's our guy and this is our religious thing. Because there is no other way. There is real and lasting and true hope. There is It's hard to believe because this is a really dark and hopeless world. But there is real hope, but it is found in Jesus or not at all. It is only found in him. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for revealing yourself in Jesus. I'm I'm blown away that you did that, mainly because you didn't have to. There's nothing in you that forced you to come to us. But you left eternity. You left the glory of your Father. You left infinite joy and exaltation forevermore. And you became a human. You had a heartbeat. You had a pulse. You grew up. You were a king. And yet you became a crying baby. We don't understand. It's a mystery to us. But Father, I pray that you would empower us to do three things this Christmas. I pray that you would empower us to marvel at the incarnation, to reflect on it, but to marvel at the fact that God became a human to bring humans back to God. We couldn't do it ourselves, but you did it. Only you could, and you did it. So I pray that we would marvel. I pray that we would also meditate. May we meditate on the incarnation, not just during Christmas, but throughout the year, and be blown away by what we see. May we use all of our mental capabilities, all of our study skills, and search and search and search the scriptures to understand as much as we possibly can. And when we come to the end of it, may we just marvel at the mystery. And Father, finally, I pray that you would help us and empower us to mimic the incarnation. 
Our example for humility is not a beggar, but it's a king who condescended and took on flesh. Father, may we live incarnational lives. May we run to those who are hurting. May we run to those who are vulnerable. May we run to those who are voiceless and speak up for them. May we be strong where others are weak, just as you are strong where we are weak. Father, I pray that you would transform marriages in this room because husband and wife are seeking to mimic the incarnation, to live humbly before one another. Father, I pray that friendships, other relationships, that our church would be transformed because we are mimicking the incarnation. Father, may our evangelism be transformed because we are running to those who are in darkness. We are running to those who are empty and we are showing them there is a fountain of grace that will never run dry. Come, come with me and drink and live. Father, I pray that you would empower all of that. Would you grant all of that to us? Father, we adore your son, his unique person with two natures. I pray that our worship would be ignited this Christmas as we set our gaze on him and that by doing so, he would transform our lives so that we would increase from one degree of glory to another as we look forward and long for the day when you return to restore all things and destroy sin and death and darkness forever and that we would live together as your people in your place, in your presence, in the glory of your light. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. We encourage you to stand and respond in song. You are the one.